Chapter 8 Wisconsin Death Trip Of all the venues on the tour, the World Golf Dome in Bridgeview took the dubious prize as the most alternative. We put a summer festival in an indoor golf driving range and everything about it just sucked. The venue was a pressurized dome, so load-in took forever because we needed to pause in a narrow hallway with each load of equipment, repressurize, and then head through the next door. We made triple sure that the pyro guys didn't set up because I could see them blowing the dome right off the place. The venue was surreal once people were inside and the band started playing on both stages. It was a steaming hot, cacophonous mess. I had a thought to go up to the second level and hit golf balls into the crowd, but it seemed like too much effort. One bright spot was the caterer we hired for the show who put out an appealing selection of barbecue. Everyone was excited to pile up a plate with ribs, chicken, and actual vegetables. Until a crew member bit into a huge piece of glass and started bleeding from his mouth. Everyone stared dejectedly at the food piled on their plates and then threw it all in the garbage. Tattooing was illegal in Bridgeview, but the mayor gave us a special permit to do some demonstrations. The mayor failed to inform the local police of that fact, though, and they started harassing us right when the doors opened. Then the word came down that there was something wrong with Philip's visa. There wasn't, and the local police were coming to take him in. Naomi ran to his tent and told him they had to go, right then and right away. Philip started grabbing his equipment, but Naomi said she would take care of it and they needed to leave immediately. Naomi and Philip fought their way through the venue, but it was so crowded they could barely move. There were people throwing up and passed out from the heat. They ran out the back of the building and had to wait to get pressurized before they could leave. They were convinced the police would trap them in there. Once they got out, they ran over some dirt mounds, stumbling down until they were in the bus and safely hidden away. The cops stopped all the tattoo demonstrations for no other reason than that they could and it pissed us off. I did interviews with the Chicago Tribune and a local TV station ranting about how we were being harassed and how our freak show could not be stopped. Booth didn't like that I was giving the interviews and didn't think I should be representing tattooing. I told him I was representing Tattoo the Earth, not speaking for tattooing, and that he could talk to them the next time if he wanted. I wanted whatever was best for the tour. I was emceeing because it needed to be done and didn't particularly want to do it. I found it to be a pain in the ass. But people seemed to be responding, I was getting better at it, and the bands appreciated the intro. We've got Sean Vasquez, Paul Booth, Philip Liu, and Bernie Luther, some of the best tattoo artists in the world, I would say to the crowd. Someone's gonna bleed today. Then I'd point to someone in the front, it might be you, motherfucker. Or I'd go off on some riff about tattooing the moon. Doing interviews and introducing bands established me as the face of the brand, and it irked Booth that the face was a tattoo outsider. Our next stop was Waterworks Park in Des Moines, Slipknot's hometown show. Like Kansas, this was not a suitable stop for us, and we didn't sell a whole lot of tickets. The morning started ominously when one of the crew went into a porta potty during load in, and the porta potty got picked up by a forklift and taken all the way to the other side of the field. He was covered in blue goo when he finally escaped, and we were all terrified to use them after that. We hired a local caterer, and the spread was the worst so far cold cuts and dressing, sitting out in 100 degree heat. Even the flies took a pass. And once the band started and the local promoter heard the volume and non-stop cursing from the stage, the rest of the show was fraught. 
The local promoter wanted me to do something about the cursing, as if I would or could. If I told the bands not to say motherfucker, they'd go right on stage and tell the crowd that some cock-sucking motherfucker told us not to say motherfucker. There weren't a whole lot of love songs played on the tour. By that time in the tour, I'd gotten to know most of the second stage bands. The main stage bands were more aloof. I don't think I saw Tom Araya from Slayer the entire tour. But the second stage bands were all grateful they'd gotten the support of their record company and had a slot on the tour. On the best of days, most of the second stage bands got to play 20 minutes, which meant 23 and a half hours of waiting around to play a couple of songs. On amphitheater shows where we had to put all the bands on one stage, we'd have to cut some bands or shorten sets to 10 minutes and have bands play just as the doors opened. Nashville Pussy once played a 12-minute set and bragged that it was their best per hour rate the band has ever been paid. The tour was a tough gig, but the new bands had a record out and this was the best way to promote it before they headed off on their own tours. I know that Slipknot was bummed that we didn't sell more tickets, but there were a lot of reasons behind it. We'd put our tickets on sale late. The market was saturated with lifestyle tours. It was a non-traditional venue. People tend to go to venues they are familiar with and our lineup just wasn't strong enough to break through those obstacles. But the disappointment made them emotional, and Slipknot played one of their better shows of the tour. I stood in the crowd and watched them for a while, and it was mesmerizing. The whole thing was a sonic assault, but once I took it in and let my defenses down, it was exhilarating. Sid the DJ was climbing on the scaffolds and dove into the crowd. All of them played with such reckless abandon, Joey's drumming was the fastest I've ever seen. It was amazing they weren't seriously hurt and could do that night after night. The dedication to their music and fans was astounding, and the fans responded by losing it at every show. It's only about two things, Corey would tell the crowd, you and us. I was getting into their set, and I knew some of that interest could be chalked up to musical Stockholm Syndrome, listen to anything enough times, and you'll eventually start becoming engaged. But I like Slipknot, and it was a triumphant show for them. Unfortunately, a few weeks after the show, not only did Slipknot and Tattoo the Earth get banned from Waterworks Park, but all concerts were banned from Waterworks Park in perpetuity. We'd played eight shows and been banned for life by two of them. I'm getting sick of this. I vented to Sean Vasquez. They won't let us tattoo, they fucking ban us, they're treating us like shit, and it's not right, man. Dude, you can't be serious, Sean said, laughing. You came to Iowa with a bunch of tattoo artists and fucking Slipknot and Slayer to tattoo their children, and you're upset you didn't get a parade? How did you think they were going to react? Hey, man, I'm just a mixed-up kid from Long Island trying to entertain the kids, I told him. We come in peace, dude, but fuck them if they can't see the future. That's all great, bro, but get ready because it's only going to get worse. The whole enterprise seemed like it was getting darker and more dangerous as we headed west and then south. The vibe was foreboding the moment we set foot at our next stop, Floatright Park in Somerset, Wisconsin. Our show was part of the 93X Clambake, the local rock radio station's annual festival, but the mood was anything but festive. During the day at most shows, Clown liked to take a golf cart into the festival village to check out the crowd and listen to some of the bands. He was anonymous without his mask and enjoyed the freedom of driving around and seeing what he had wrought. In Somerset, Clown took out a golf cart with Fran, Sonny Mayo from Amen, and a few others. Golf carts were definitely one of the best parts of the tour. I'd made the right call about Fran. 
The bands trusted him, and they all gave him complete access on stage and off. Fran said Carrie King from Slayer approached him in Lawrence. Carrie is an intimidating character, and Fran first thought he'd done something to piss Carrie off. But Carrie told him to come up on stage and shoot away. Fran was a talented photographer, reliable, and a good hang. Clown, Fran, and Sonny were cruising around Floatright Park when out of nowhere, Clown got clotheslined by a security guard and the cart flipped on its side. Then the security guard maced them at close distance while they were still on the ground. Within seconds, they were all rolling on the ground, gasping for breath. Fran said it was the closest he'd ever felt to dying. They got Clown close up, right in the face, and he was vomiting, snot pouring from his nose. He was having serious trouble breathing, so paramedics put him on oxygen and got him back to his bus. We weren't sure if we would be able to play that night or whether he should. The head of the venue security had maced the leader of the headline band a few hours before the show, and we weren't sure if it would be safe for them to play. I'm not in this thing to fucking cancel, Zukoski bellowed over the phone when we filled him in on the situation. We're going to get paid tonight, so work it out. We met with the promoter and the security team, and our tour manager, Ronnie, told me not to engage with the head of security. I know you want to rip into that guy, but we need to just keep our mouths shut, play, get paid, and get out of here, Ronnie said seriously. These motherfuckers are crazy. You don't want to mess with these people. He shook his head. Wisconsin, man. The head of security had a strange, smug look when we met to get assurances that the band would not be bothered again. They said Clown was driving recklessly, ignoring instructions, and made obscene gestures, which I knew was bullshit. Who did what didn't matter at this point, and Ronnie tried to keep everyone focused. The promoter asked that the band not mention the incident from the stage. We agreed, and asked that the head of security be nowhere near the band for the rest of the night. So they played. Clown didn't want to cancel either, but we had our people positioned around the band during their set in case shit broke loose. I saw the head of security lurking around but decided not to confront him. The show was brutal. It was the only show where event staff pushed the fans back into the mosh pit. Typically, they pull them into a space in front of the stage and let them walk around back into the crowd or to EMS if they got beat up. But at this event, staff were pushing them all back in. And it was causing a weird dynamic, like water crashing against a dam. It was tense, and I wouldn't have any sense of relief until we were all out of there and on the highway. Precious slut, my rogue body painter, didn't make it out of Somerset. When word spread about the incident, slut started ranting about what happened at his body painting tent and was getting the crowd agitated. And that was it for slut. He had been a pain in the ass since his impromptu underage strip club in Portland, and every show had been a test of how far he could push the boundaries. The promoter in Cleveland wouldn't even let him set up. Slut also had a number of nefarious and illegal activities going on, and now he was just trying to start a riot. So I fired him and had someone drive him to the airport. I had our entire touring party locked down in their buses until we broke down the equipment and were on our way. I found out later that Clown's macing was retribution for an incident that had occurred when Slipknot played the venue with Ozfest the previous year. The band had been unhappy with how they were treated, and one of them took a shit on the dressing room floor. The macing was payback. Tattoo the Earth got sandwiched between the shit and the mace. The next show was at the Eagles Ballroom, a landmark venue in Milwaukee, where we took an outdoor festival and put it into a 3,500-seat club. The village was outside in a section of the parking lot covered with jagged pieces of gravel. 
The tattoo artists had finally had it and said they weren't going to tattoo. Naomi had developed a good rapport with the artists and got to work trying to calm the situation. When she joined the tour in Kansas, Sean Vasquez told her to take one of the top sleeping berths on the bus, that those were the most comfortable. Everyone had a good laugh when Naomi came flying out of the bunk the first time the bus took a tight turn. She was a good sport, good company, super organized, and the artists knew that she was there to advocate for them. Surrounded in the rave nightclub, Naomi asked them what she could do for them. What could she do to make them happy? Get us some paper and drawing pencils and let us draw, Philip replied. So Naomi went out and found some large sheets of paper and charcoal pens, carved out some open space on one of the club's floors, and turned four big round tables on their side to make an easel. The four tattoo artists each started at one of the tables, and then after 20 minutes, they each shifted to another and took up where the previous artists had left off. They continued rotating, and the finished pieces were an amalgam of the four artists and unique. They drew a crowd, and people were taken in by the process. They dubbed it the Art Fusion Experiment, and it was good to see the artists happy, especially Booth. It had been a tough tour for them, and this was a highlight so far. As I walked through the crowd to get to the village, I stopped to watch Seven Dust. I was able to shut off everything for a song and get into the music and the crowd. They were one of my favorites on the tour and were one of the most accessible bands. Seven Dust loved to hang. Their rock and roll roots and their mix of melodic and heavy appealed to me, and I tried to watch some of their set every night. Standing there in the Eagles ballroom smelling the stale beer and reefer, I was lost in the moment, then snapped out of it and went outside to check on the village. As I got near the village, I saw an EMT taking away a young guy whose face was bleeding. I thought there must have been a fight, but it turned out the guy had decided to pierce his face 15 times in an ill-advised effort to finagle a backstage pass. The police grabbed him when the fourth face piercing with a four-inch needle drew a crowd and the blood started flowing. The EMTs cleaned him up, and he was later seen with small band-aids all over his face watching Slipknot. He wasn't the only one injured that night. Fran, fresh off his macing in Somerset, was standing in front of the stage shooting Slayer with his elbows resting on the stage as he balanced the camera. A huge fan came body surfing out of the mosh pit and landed on top of him, smashing his eye into the camera and splitting his eyebrow. The EMTs suggested he go to the hospital to get some stitches, but that could take a long time and we were planning to shove off as soon as the gear was loaded. They put a butterfly stitch on it and suggested he get the dressing changed by the EMTs in the next city, and that's what he did, in city after city until it healed. He and I were standing outside the building and someone told us a car parked right in front of us belonged to Jeffrey Dahmer. Dahmer had killed his first victim a few blocks away at the Ambassador Hotel, and the owner of the car vouched for its authenticity as the last car Dahmer owned. Wisconsin, Fran said, shaking his head. Some artists from Slipknot's local tattoo shop were in Milwaukee and Clown wanted to get the Slipknot logo tattooed on the side of his calf. Philip, still in the collaborative spirit of the art fusion experiment, talked Clown into getting a collaborative tattoo by all the artists. They set up in a dressing room and over the course of a few hours, Philip, Booth, Bernie, Sean, and the guys from his home shop tattooed Clown at the same time. Getting tattooed by multiple people is no joke, but Clown toughed it out. This was a guy who could take some pain. 
We all realized that Fran didn't have any tattoos and talked about hog-tying him at the next show and tattooing him on stage. Clown was deep into his tattoo when he asked me if I wanted to tattoo him, and with Philip over my shoulder, I tattooed someone for the first time. I had a small area to fill in and my heart was jumping as I got the needle close to his skin. Just as I made contact, Clown fake screamed and I nearly leapt out of my shoes. The next night in Pontiac, Michigan, it was my turn. Tattooing the public wasn't possible because the village was washed out by rain, so Bernie finished the sleeve he'd started on me in Berlin. Who did this? Bernie screamed, when he looked over my arm and saw what Philip had added to the design. Some tattoo pieces take multiple sessions to finish, sometimes over a period of years, so the artist likes to carefully look over the work to remind him what he's been creating and to see if the owner has been taking care of the tattoo. Sean used to chastise clients for hanging their arms out of car windows and getting too much sun on his work. When I told Bernie it was Philip who added to his design, he laughed and begrudgingly accepted it, just as Philip had predicted. At least he didn't ruin it, Bernie muttered. I don't know if I was tired or what, but I suffered and struggled while Bernie worked on my arm. Granted, he was tattooing my elbow, but I'd been through much worse. Philip said the best painkiller is wanting it and I guess I didn't want it in Pontiac. I did want the sleeve finished, though, and seeing the final version was a great moment. That day, Philip did a serpent demon chess piece on LeJean Witherspoon from Seven Dust and one of his trademark skulls on the forearm of Sid from Slipknot. Booth tattooed a sun moon on Corey Taylor's chest, he tattooed Igor Cavalera and Andreas Kisser from Sepultura, and John Connolly from Seven Dust. The Tattoo the Earth musicians were awash in skulls, demons, and monsters. Philip and Booth did a collaborative chess piece on Ryan Martini for Mudvayne, a freehand mix of their dark and tribal styles with an eyeball at its center. Ryan was in agony toward the end of the tattoo, but played his set right after, as did Lejean. Both Ryan and Lejean said that playing live in the wake of a post-tattoo endorphin rush was an almost spiritual experience. The show in Pontiac took place in the parking lot of the Phoenix Plaza, and though there was a driving rainstorm the entire day, we had a crowd of 10,000 people. It was too rainy to set up for tattooing, and the village was just about washed out. I introduced a few of the bands standing in an inch of water. The rain was coming in sideways, and sound and light rigs were swaying. I started with my usual bullshit. Are you motherfuckers ready for Mudvayne? when a spark plug went whizzing by my ear and hit a cymbal. The thing was zooming and would have been deeply embedded in my skull if it had been thrown a few inches to the right. That was it for emceeing that night. It's weird how people threw things that were native to their local area. A bratwurst got thrown at the stage in Milwaukee, a barbecued turkey leg in Texas. Not only did the tattooing get washed out, but I needed to refund the vendors because the day was a bus for them. Depending on what challenge we faced, I was cutting deals with vendors at each show and trying to keep everyone happy, especially those who were out there selling their wares to make a living. A bunch of the vendors were from record companies or were sponsors, and they were giving things away, not selling, so they didn't care. Janeco sent out a young guy to staff their booth, and the kid traded a tour's worth of promotional items for blowjobs. In just a couple of shows, he got thrown off the tour. We recorded the show in Pontiac for a live album, and it was a minor miracle that we were able to pull it off. 
Before the tour, Zakowski had arranged a lucrative deal for a live recording, but Slayer's management put the kibosh on it with their demands and restrictions. We were still hoping to salvage the deal as we started the tour, but Slayer again nixed it, and also demanded additional lights at considerable cost, even though the majority of their shows took place before it got dark. Pontiac was one of the few shows where we actually used them. Between the lights, the blown record deal, and overpaying them for the shows, Slayer were costing us a chunk of money. We were all pissed when the deal fell through, but Steve Richards' brother, Gary, stepped in and put together a deal with his record company. We weren't going to make as much, the deal didn't have the same distribution, and we would only have one opportunity to record one show, but it was better than nothing. The undone deal soured an already contentious relationship with Slayer's management. The music business bullshit was a constant hum of obstruction and pettiness, and more irritating and frustrating with each show.